Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Well, welcome to Ontario Shores, uh, Brian, and welcome everybody to our Century of Care uh, podcast. We have three of these today. This is our second one. This morning went uh, quite well with Lori Lane Murphy, an ambassador of hope, and Kareem Amdeni, our president and CEO. And we have um, uh, Chris Bovey, my co-host. My name is Daryl Mathers. We have a very special guest with us today. Many of you know it's Brian Burke. He's a longtime hockey executive, uh, current broadcaster with Sportsnet. You see him on Hockey Night in Canada, and you'll see him tonight on Sportsnet. Uh, I, I get nervous when people say currently. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. You could leave town and get a job somewhere else, right? Like that's uh, pretty common in your profession. Um, so, we'll, well, first of all, thank you for being here on this uh, this My day. My pleasure. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, for us. This has been more than a year in the making uh, in terms of the celebration. We've been celebrating at every possible point uh, in the months leading up to this day. And uh, thank you for, uh, for making it one that's uh, going to be memorable for our patients, our staff, our community. So thank you. We're going to talk a lot of things today. Um, we're not just going to talk about mental health, although we're going to get to that. But Brian's uh, an interesting guy for a lot of reasons. Uh, in the hockey world, he would probably be your stereotypical hockey guy. He's, uh, um, you have you probably consider yourself old school in terms of a lot of your opinions, but uh, forward thinking in a lot of different issues, which is why we thought you'd be a good fit uh, with us. So maybe we can just start with um, how you got into uh, being a hockey executive, because I know that you were a player. You eventually went to law school. Like, how did you get hooked up on the uh, the hockey side? Well, I can put everyone in here to sleep if I tell the whole story. The 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 shorter story is. Um, I didn't start playing hockey till I was 13. We, we moved to Minnesota when I was 12. I started playing the next year, and any of you that played or have kids that play, that's very late to start. It's almost a guarantee that you're never going to make it. Uh, but I worked hard. I uh, ended up playing one year of high school hockey, then four years of college hockey. I uh, was not drafted, but then my rights were claimed by the Philadelphia Flyers. Signed with them after uh, my senior year. Played one year in the American League. We won the Calder Cup. We had a great year. I loved it. I had another year on my contract, but I'd been accepted to Harvard Law School, and they told me I either had to come in the fall or give up my spot. They would only let me defer for a year, and I wasn't the first kid they admitted that year, so <laughs> I went back. I wasn't a very good pro hockey player either. Like, we had a really good team. I, I didn't hardly play. I wasn't, I had gotten as far as I could get on guts and hard work. At some point, you need talent, and I didn't have it. So from law school, um, what happened then? So I started practicing law in Massachusetts. I'm still licensed to practice there. Um, and then I, I got into representing players. And so we had a, a reunion of our Calder Cup team in, in Portland, Maine. And Pat Quinn was the coach of the team that won the next year. So the Flyers farm team won back-to-back -back Calder Cups. I was only on the first team. And we had a reunion. So it was about 4 in the morning. And all the wives had gone to bed. It was just the players and coaches. And I was talking to Pat about the agent business, which teams did things right and which teams didn't. And he said, would you ever th consider coming to Vancouver working for me? And I said no at the time. I was embarrassed. I felt like I'd been pitching myself for a job, and I, did, I wasn't. But the next day I said, if you're serious, I'd love to go. So that's how I got started. Pat Quinn gave me a, my chance. 
and, and I mean, we're all familiar with Pat Quinn, you know, living where we do and his tenure with the Leafs and, you know, listening to the radio and especially around his passing, all the Pat Quinn stories. I imagine you have one or two Pat Quinn stories. Well, the first thing was like, people realize like Pat had time for everyone. Like I remember the first time I flew with him, I showed up at the airport like 90 minutes before the flight and I had really nice dress pants on and a dress shirt. Pat had a suit on. He goes, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to Toronto with you. He said, not dressed like that. You know, you look like a bum. <laughs> and, and my ex-wife, my first ex-wife, had just given me these pants. I thought they were really nice. So I wore a suit from then on. But then I, I walked to the gate and Pat got on the plane right when they closed the door. He couldn't walk through a building like this. He got stopped constantly by people. And he had time for everyone. He talked to everyone, signed autographs, this before selfies. No one asked for pictures, but he had time for everybody. He had a horrible temper, but just a, a great man. This was a pleasure to work for him. But we, we built into a schedule, two hours a day, we called Pat Quinn time, where people would just show up that used to play with him, or his neighbor, a guy would show up while I was Pat's neighbor in Hamilton. That's an hour. He went and <laughs> Pat would give him an hour. So we, we set aside two hours a day for Pat Quinn time, just for him to be nice to people. I never needed two hours to be nice to people. <laughs> You're, I've heard you speak of him before, and aside from the, the character he was, you talk about his leadership and how he, how he led, and I was wondering if you could, you could kind of elaborate on what kind of leader he was and why you, know, you, you cherished it so much. Well, the thing with, leaders have lots of different traits that make them successful. Pat had a, a whole bunch of them. One, he had a great moral compass, and I don't think you can be a great leader unless you're determined to do things right and do the right things. Those are very different things. Pat, so Pat would never cheat. He would never violate the, the bylaws of the league. Or, so everyone had confidence in following him that he would never do anything wrong. That was number one. Number two, he was a big guy. He's a commanding guy. Like, I'm 6'2". Pat was taller than I am. And when Pat walked into a room, everyone knew he was there. And he used his size effectively, not to intimidate people, but to be the center of attention. Three, he was a great speaker. He, was, he could talk to 10 people. He could talk to 10,000 people. Great public speaker. Um, and four, he was smart. You know, he had his law degree. He was smart. Like, if you're going to tell people what to do, you better know what you're doing. So he had all those things. I, I wanted all my life, I wanted to be like Pac Quinn. I wanted to be just like Pac Quinn. And I, I think I got fairly close. That's great. I, I know when you were with the Canucks, there was a real sort of turning point. And I'm always interested as a general manager how you have to manage multiple egos and personalities. And I think it was a time maybe in 97 where you were faced with Marcus Naslin maybe jumping ship and not getting along with Mike Keenan. And how did you manage to pull that together? Because he was instrumental going forward for the club. Yeah, so... It was, I went back there in 98, so this would have been 98, 99. 98, okay. Marcus Naslin, maybe Pat Quinn's best trade ever. Um, he got Marcus Naslin from the Pittsburgh Penguins for... Um, was it Stoyanov or something yeah, like that? Yeah, Alex Stoyanov. Yeah. And everyone says, who? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Alex Stoyanov was a great kid, but not much of a player. So Marcus Naslin... Uh, didn't get along with Mike Keenan. He was the coach, and no, no one got along with Mike Keenan, frankly, not me either. <laughs> and so Marcus came to see me, and I know I know he's going to ask for a trade. 
And when a player asks for a trade, I'll tell a kid to get lost. And I said, look, you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not trading you until I'm good and ready. But a guy who's been around and asked for a trade, he's basically told me he doesn't want to wear the uniform again. I won't let him play. I, tr I get rid of him. So he might play three or four games while I trade him, but then I get rid of him. So I knew Marcus was going to ask for a trade. So I said, sit down and shut up. Don't say it. <laughs> Don't say a, a bloody word. <laughs> and I said, I know why you're here. You're not going to say the words. You're going to be here long after the coach is. But, Marcus, you're stealing money right now, the way you're playing. You're, you're not playing well defensively. You're not scoring goals. You're of no value to anybody. You can't blame the coach on that. You've got to come back with a renewed purpose. And he went home and sat across the kitchen table from his wife, and he said, you know what? He's right. Next day, we got a new player, a totally mm -hmm. different player. Like, and then I replaced Keenan. He had like 340 goal seasons right after. He was right phenomenal. After and, and the thing was, he's a mild-going guy, but he's a big man. Like, mm -hmm. I remember he had knee surgery, and my wife, my second ex-wife, and I went to see him in the <laughs> hospital, and he had just a little Johnny on him. My ex-wife couldn't believe how big he was because mm -hmm. he's a skilled guy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But he was like 200 mm -hmm. pounds and ripped. Mm -hmm. Your time, your time in Vancouver, um, you know, you actually for, I think, I'm not sure people realize, you're actually the first American-born GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, in, which wasn't that long ago, but uh, you spent most of your career in, in Canada, and I wonder what uh, that experience has, has meant to you, like what, and you, you, you live here today, you live in Toronto, and uh, what's it like working in a, in a Canadian market? Well, I've worked in the Canadian market every chance I got. Mm. Every time I've been offered a job in Canada, I took it because I like how important hockey is here, and I like the fact that it gives me a platform for my charity work. Mm. So I won a cup in Anaheim. That's our ring. No one even knew I was there. But I was on five years on a non-playoff Leaf team, and I had a big voice. So mm. well, I, I work on stuff with the military, women's hockey, uh, LGBTQ stuff. I have a voice. I have a platform. And I can accomplish the thing. I make a difference wherever I live, and I couldn't do that in the States. So I told our players in Calgary this. I said, when you retire, what you will cherish is playing in Canada. That's what you'll remember, that people loved you and they cared about this game, and they looked after you. And you won't get that. Even in crazy hockey cities, it's not even close. I remember I was watching a Red Sox game with Theo Epstein. Remember, he was the GM of the Sox that broke the curse. What, 1908 or was the last yeah. time they won? Mm -hmm. And they won a World Series. And he said to me, are, are you me in Toronto? And I laughed at him. I said, Theo, how many people recognize you? Like, would any of you recognize Theo Epstein? No one knows who he is. Mm -hmm. I said, if we walked downtown Boston, how many people would know you? He said, maybe two out of 10. I said, well, in Toronto, try six or seven out of 10. <laughs> so I said, I can't walk anywhere. If I stop walking anywhere in downtown Toronto, I get surrounded. Mm -hmm. So I said, that's what I love about it. Not the notoriety, but it, give, it gives me a platform. It lets me do my, the stuff that's really important to me. Mm -hmm. like if the, and I'm annoyed when more Canadian GMs don't use that platform. You, you mentioned um, your cup win in 2007, which is one of your... Did uh, I bring that up? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It does get brought up. If I had a ring like that, I'd bring it up too. Um, I think that's what your... Second of two stints you've had in the States being a general manager, but uh, if you could take us through, there's a couple things that are really stick out to me, being a hockey fan and paying attention during that time period. It's the pronger trade that you made. So Edmonton had made a run to the cup. I think they'd beat you out in the, either the conference finals that, that year, and uh, pronger wanted out, and you made that trade. So if you could talk, walk us through that trade, and then it's the next year, I believe, with the RFA situation with Dustin Penner where... 
Kevin Lowe became your kind of uh, nemesis for a few years, and it was as a hockey fan one of the most highly entertaining <laughs> periods of time because there's not too many times where you get sound bites from GMs going after each other. So well, the second one. So Dustin Penner was a left winger that played on our cup team. I, I mentioned the cup team, right? <laughs> and so that summer, um, Edmonton signed him to an offer sheet. We were up against the salary cap. We couldn't match it. And I was sour for two reasons. One, Dustin Penner wasn't that good a hockey player. And he, they overpaid him badly. And it was a bad deal for the league. So I was mad at that. Now I got to sign Getzlaff and Corey Perry, who were much better players. And they, they threw like four million bucks at Dustin Penner back in 19, you know, 2008, summer of 2007. So I was really sour about that. Then Kevin didn't call me and tell me. So like courtesy is etiquette is you call and say, look, we're putting an offer sheet in on your guy. We were both in Penticton at the time, too. We could have just walked down the street and told him. <laughs> we thought we were going to get offer sheeted, but not Dustin Penner and not Edmonton. We mm -hmm. just didn't think anyone would spend that kind of money on that player. Because Dustin Penner is a good hockey player. If he were here, I'd say the same thing, but not, a, not an integral part of our cup. So Kevin Lowe did an, I, I went nuts on him. I ripped on him in the paper pretty good. And then he did a radio interview in Edmonton, and he said... Uh, Oh, Brian Burke this, Brian Burke that, anytime, anywhere. So that's not how you challenge someone to a fight. <laughs> so I called Glenn Sather the next day. I was at my house in Newport Beach, and I went out in the yard because the cell phone reception was better. And I called Slats and said, that's not how you challenge someone to a fight. So you call Kevin Lowe, tell him I'm going to Lake Placid on August 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. <laughs> I'm at the Holiday Inn. Tell him to get there, I'll rent a bar and I'll kick the shit out of him, <laughs> and then I'll drive him to the hospital. Yeah, something you don't see two GMs uh, well, talking about. My ex-wife overheard it, or else Slats called, because somebody called Gary Bettman right away. <laughs> and he called me about 10 minutes later, he said, am I hearing something about renting a barn and having a fight? <laughs> he said, if you fight Kevin Lowe, I'll suspend you both for longer than your contracts. So the fight never happened. Just uh, speaking the of... trade. So yeah. we, we went, my first year there, we went, so Brian Murray was a GM before I got there, and he drafted in one draft Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry, both in the first round. Like, tremendous, tremendous draft picks. Just, he was such a big part of that cup team. So we, we, we got done. We played in the conference finals. We lost to Edmonton, and we could have beat Edmonton. I don't think we could have beat Tampa in the finals. I don't think we were good enough, but we could have beaten Edmonton, but our team... No one thought we were going to make the playoffs. And now we're playing in the third round, and our players are like, hey, this is pretty cool. It was enough for them. That year, it was enough. They, they thought they'd overachieved. They thought they'd climb Mount Everest. And I was, I was yelling at the guys. I'm like, guys, we can do this. But by the time we figured out we were a better team than they were, it was, we were down three games to one. It was too late. So we met after the season, and J.S. Shiger was our goaltender, and he was a great money goaltender. He's a guy that played better in the playoffs than he did in the regular season. So we all sat down and we said, did we, do we have a cup contending team or do we just ride a great goaltender for three rounds? And we we're all like, no, we have a great team. And Getzlaff and Perry will be second year pros next year. They're both get 90 points. We're, we're good enough. We just, and I said, well, what do we need? And everyone said the same thing, Chris Pronger. We need one A defense. And we had Scott Niedermeyer. We traded for uh, Francois Beauchemin. We had Sean O'Donnell. We needed a, a top two defenseman. So we all knew Chris Pronger wanted to get out of Edmonton. And so at the draft, Edmonton asked for proposals from four teams. So we proposed we would trade Joffrey Lupo, who was, 
he had been our best forward in the playoffs that year. He had a great, we beat Colorado one night 4 nothing. He had all four goals. They asked for him, they asked for Ladislav Smeed, who's a young Czech defenseman with, with some bite and some skill, and, two fir and a first round pick. So we said yes, right at the, on the spot, but the league wouldn't let us do it because of the salary cap. We had a, what they call a tagging room issue. So we had to do it after October 1st. So we did it on October 1st, and Kevin Lowe was driving to the shoe swap, and he said, uh, I'm punching your ticket to the finals if I trade you this player. I said, I think you are. So I said, I'll throw in another first if we play in the finals. So I ended up being uh, Lupel, Smead, and two firsts. So I called Laddie Smead in the Czech Republic, and he's in a restaurant. I said, Laddie, it's Berkey. You've got to get somewhere where I, you can hear me. It's important. So he gets out in the foyer of this restaurant, and he goes, okay, what's up? I said, I just traded you. And he goes, oh, no. He says, where? I said, Edmonton. He says, oh, good, good hockey town. That's okay. What for? I said, well, Chris Pronger. And he, he held the phone up and yelled at the whole bar, <laughs> I'm like, no, there's more. It's not one for one. There's so more. That, uh, and Chris Bonger was, was what we needed. We, were, that was a, we started talking about the cup in training camp, mm -hmm. which you're not supposed to do. We talked about anything less than winning a Stanley Cup with this team would be failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I want to sort of pivot to mental health a little bit. Okay. Yeah, Just, um, there was a time not too long ago where a lot of incidents in the news with deaths of Wade Belock and Derek Bugard, Greg Johnson, it all had either suicide or mental health uh, challenges with it. But at the time, I remember the sports media was always talking about fights and CTE and that, you know, it, there still was that narrative that a, a, an athlete or an elite athlete couldn't suffer from a, a mental illness or depression. It had to be related to fighting or something like that. And I'm wondering if, if that narrative is changing at all in the NHL. Yeah, and, and what, what we're talking about here is we, we've got, there are two issues. I think they're very distinct, and I think it's good that you separate them. We've got the whole head trauma issue, CTE issue, um, that goes back to, in a full contact sport, you're going to have that. It's, we're, we're stuck with it. There's no way we can eliminate concussions from the NHL, not the way we play it, and we want to keep it that way. But we've learned to diagnose the injury properly and treat it properly, and the NHL has actually been a groundbreaker in that. The other sports now employ the same protocol that we've been employing for 10 years. So I think the NHL has been out ahead of it. Um, there are some former players that have they've been proven. The only test you can do for CTE is after you die. So a couple guys have donated their brain, and it's been determined that, in fact, they did have CTE. There's been the medical community to this day refuses to link them. There's not, there's not enough of a sample size. They've only got like 11 brains or 15 brains at Boston University to check. So the medical community has never said there's a link. I believe there's a link. They're going to find that link someday. So we've got to treat our athletes' injuries properly. We've got to rehabilitate them properly. When a guy's near a danger point, and we don't know what that is yet, three concussions, four, uh, it might be time for him to step away from the game. The mental health issue is another thing. Our players are just like any other human beings. There's always been a stigma to mental illness in society. Uh, there's something wrong with you if you admit you have a mental illness. There's something, you're cuckoo, there's something wrong. And thank God we're changing that. You know, and, and in my, my house, my mom died of Alzheimer's. That's about four years ago now, five years ago. And my son Patrick, who works for the NHL, had clinical depression. And was suicidal thoughts, the whole thing. I didn't know anything about depression. 
I learned more about depression in about 72 hours than I had learned my whole life before that and realized what a crippling disease it is. So pro sports is, and society, I think it is okay to have a mental illness. It's no different than any other part of your body. It's okay to have a gallbladder out, but not to have depression. Well, that's changing, thankfully. So I think we've made great progress in it, uh, in that area. I don't think players are afraid to talk about it now. And I think there's much more active workplace where we encourage, you know, because a hockey team, is, you only see 20 players, but we have 300 people that work for us, right? Scouts and accountants, and we have HR, and we have IT, and we've told those people, well, look for the signs. You know, like, don't be afraid to say to someone, are you all right? You seem down. Yeah, you're not talking much lately. Like, reach out to people that show the signs of mental illness. Don't, don't be a passive participant. So I think we've, we're not where we need to be, not even close, but we've made great progress. How do we, how do we get the athletes to, to come forward, I guess? I guess maybe, maybe you're answering that just in, in that kind of community uh, mindset in terms of acceptance, but there's so many things that when you're a professional athlete that are questioned about you, you know, your toughness, especially in hockey, it's right, heart, toughness, like everybody glorifies uh, Gregory Campbell breaking his leg, blocking a shot to get the Bruins into the Stanley Cup final. Um, there's so many, like Bobby Bond breaking his leg, scoring in overtime. Like there's so much, there's so much history and 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 uh, hero, I guess heroics around people that have persevered, right? But when it comes to mental health, we don't we don't have necessarily athletes who are taking a, a mental health day or or at least that are upfront about it, right? It's that that. Those conversations aren't happening. We, we've, had a, we've had a few athletes. Kyle Ocposo did a great article mm -hmm. in the, uh, the Athletic last mm -hmm. year about his battles with depression mm -hmm. and um, nightmares and night sweats and stemming from some incidents in his childhood. He, he was very open about it. We've encouraged our athletes that have dealt with this to, to talk about it publicly. So Paul Correa has talked about publicly. Mm -hmm. He had some anxiety issues. And we, we got to get to the point where... A young kid should admire a pro athlete for lots of things, and one of them should be that this is a guy who gets it. He's an advocate for mental health issues. You know, we've, enc we've encouraged our players, if, if you've got a past in this, we want to identify our players with, so if I say to, pick a player, if I say to Corey Perry, everyone, I'm, you guys all know this, the guys on my teams have to be active in the community. It's not optional. So my teams do probably three times what the next team in the NHL does in the community. But, and, they, and they do it on time and cheerfully or they go somewhere else, it's not optional. But if we get a guy to go, so I say you go and you're gonna do you know, a mental health issue and it's not near and dear to your heart, you're still gonna do it, but you're not gonna be as passionate about it. So we ask the players, what, what's your passion? Do you have, you wanna do military stuff? Is there a military in your family? Is there a police officer in your family, a firefighter? We'll have you work with the police. Have you had mental issues, issues in your house? Then we'll have you be the spokesperson for mental health. We try and find people who are attached to the cause and passionate about the cause. We need to get more spoken about it, but I'm really encouraged the way it's going. It's, it's like all the LGBTQ stuff I do. I had a son who was gay and he passed away in a car accident. So we do a lot of, our family does a lot of LGBTQ work. And it's the same thing. I'm so encouraged where we are. We're nowhere near where we have to get to, but the progress that's been made is phenomenal. I feel the same way on the mental health issues. So is, 
you know, nothing affects you more than it, when it affects your own family and having that perspective. And I'm just curious if you go back before um, your sons were, you know, your son was diagnosed with, with depression or your, your other son came out. Did you have that same perspective back then? Like, are there other GMs that, because they don't have that close perspective, don't really understand this issue when it comes to their team? Well, on the LGBTQ front, I just tell people, if you don't, if you don't have this issue in your family, it's just because you don't have it yet. Someone in your family is going to be gay. You're going to find out, or they're going to marry into a family. It, you're you're going to encounter it up close and personal. In my case, I did not take any position on mental health issues, I'm embarrassed to say, and I was not an advocate for LGBTQ causes. Now, it was no issue in my house when my son came out. Like, we didn't tolerate any homophobic language or jokes or no racial comments, none of that. They grew up in a house where acceptance was taught and insisted upon, so it was no catastrophic thing where I, and that's the hardest part. I tell people, you tell your kids that there's something wrong with them if they're LGBTQ, you try and mend that fence when, if your kid comes out. You try and mend that fence. You'll never get as close to that child as you should be. So to me, when Brendan came out, I was like, okay. You've given us a million reasons to love you. This doesn't change any of them. So it was a non-event in our house. But it made me an advocate for LGBTQ causes. And I've been the beneficiary of that. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any gay friends, and I do now. And I've been the beneficiary of that. And that's a good point that you raised. You know, if, if, if someone at home or a young person has a struggling with a mental illness, and they see their parents making fun of it, it's a barrier for them to come forward and even talk about it, right? Yeah. Because they, they already feel they know what the answer is going to be. You've built a fence in front of the kid then. Yeah. You've, there's a fence between you and that kid, boy or girl. And just in our house, no racial humor, no ethnic humor, no LGBTQ humor. In fact, Brendan was uh, raised in a house where he actually didn't fear telling anyone in the family. Like, usually... The, the people I talk to, and, and well, people say, I wish we had an athlete, an NHL player is brave enough to come out. Well, if you talk to people, the reason they don't come out is usually a close family member whose approval is very important to them, mm -hmm. won't take it the right way. It's their, their uncle who they love, but just can't see eye to eye on this issue. And it's not about courage or anything else. And I think the first openly gay player in the NHL is gonna get a great reception, mm -hmm. but they'll come out when it's appropriate. Speaking of like receptions, I know, I remember vividly when uh, your son Brendan's story came out, and while it may not have been a huge event in your house, it was a huge event uh, in the sports world. Uh, first of all, he's your son, um, and you're you know working in the NHL in a very prominent role, but he was also working for the Ohio, Ohio State Buckeyes hockey team at the time. Was it Ohio? Miami. Oh, sorry, oh, University of uh, Miami, Ohio, and how he was accepted by the team he was yeah. working for, in particular the head coach, I think it was Rico Blasi, yeah. um, made headlines. You guys sat down, you did interviews with ESPN. Like, it, was a, it, it was a huge deal at the time. Was it it was. So Brennan's nickname was Moose. He was 6'4". And he started playing hockey very late. He went to Miami of Ohio. He was the equipment manager there. And his one dream was that one day one of the goalies would get hurt and he'd get to go in and play in that, and he was terrible. Um, so he never got to play. But when he, when he told me he was coming out, so I think it was in December, and he said, uh, Dad, I'm, he'd come out to us already, but he said, I'm, I'm coming out publicly tomorrow. I said, no, you're not. I said, you go talk to Rico Blasi. You're part of a team. 
If this will disrupt the team at all, you'll wait till the end of the year and then come out. You're not going to do anything that disrupts your team. He said, yeah, that's right. So he went to Rico Blasi, who's a wonderful human being. And Rico said, you come out tomorrow. He said, I think it's great. Fantastic. So he went and met with the team, talked to the whole team about it. They were great. There's still five or six of those guys playing in the NHL now that were teammates of Brendan's. And they were, to a man, they were fantastic. So can you walk us through what's happened since? So you mentioned, uh, obviously, Brendan's tragic death uh, following, you know, I'm not sure exactly how long it was after he came out publicly, but you started doing some uh, LGBTQ work, and then the You Can Play project came. And can you talk a bit about the, what the You Can Play project is and what you're doing and how it's growing? So Brendan did not play. He went to a Catholic high school outside of Boston. Same high school that the Wagner kid that plays for the Bruins went to. And he did not play hockey at the high school his senior year. And he told me later it was because the homophobic nature of the dressing room. So he played for a town team, and he had the best year of hockey in his life. They won the championship of this crappy little league, and he had fun with great kids on the team. Uh, but he told me later, he said it was too toxic in the dressing room. He said, you know, everyone faggot and homo, and he said, I just couldn't couldn't deal with it. So you can play is designed to create comfortable situations for athletes in that, in that case. So the whole notion is if you can play, you can play. In other words, we don't care what color you are. We don't care who you go home with at night. We don't care what church you go to. If you can play, you can play. You belong on our team. So it started out with NHL players. They know Chara, uh, Claude Giroux. Everyone we asked said yes. So they had uh, it was shot by a real hot shot ad agency in New York City. Were, uh, real tight shots. All you could see was the player's head. No identification. Didn't say Zdeno Chara. And he said, if you can pass, and then they go to the next player. You can pass. If you can shoot, you can shoot. George Perils did one, if you can fight, you can fight. And then at the one, you can play. And finally, if you can play, and then all of them say, if you can play, you can play. Trying to create comfortable situations for gay athletes, more particularly male gay athletes, Female athletes are way more accepted if they're gay than male athletes. Mm -hmm. Trying to create a culture where a, a gay athlete wasn't uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. it's, been, it's, it's been a great work. All the major sports are involved with us in some way. Uh, my son stepped away as the executive director because we felt it was too much of the Burke family and not mm -hmm. enough about the charity itself. Mm -hmm. So it's been a, a, great, a great boon for, for a lot of kids. Where do you see the kind of the future of that project, like moving? Well, it, it, it's never going to be. I remember when Brendan came out, I said, Brendan, so I went to high school in Minnesota, right? And high school in Minnesota is only three years. So you go one through six, then middle school, seven, eight, nine, high school is 10, 11, 12. So my high school, there were 3,000 kids. There were 1,000 kids in each grade, not one gay student. Well, of course there were gay students. But no one dared come out back then. And when I speak to high schools now, that's what I say. No gay students. And they're, they're like, really? I'm like, of course there were gay students. There's gay players in the National Hockey League. We just don't know who they are. And we don't frankly care. But if you take whatever expert number you use, some people say it's 6%, some people say it's as high as 10%, whatever percentage is gay or transgender, whatever, we've got gay athletes that play in the National Hockey League. They have played in the past, they are playing now, they will play in the future. And it's not that big a deal to us. Someday, one of them's gonna be comfortable enough to say, hey, I'm gay. I think he's gonna find he'll get a much better reception than he probably anticipates. 
But if they want to stay in private, that's their right. That's their privilege. So to me, it's, uh, I, I think You Can Play has really helped young athletes. I get lots of letters from parents and kids. And, uh, you know, I think it does great work and an important part in a kid's life where he can stay, stay in sports and not feel that way. Yeah, and I mean, it's great to hear you talk about it and, and to be an advocate. I know it's, it, it lines up with some of the work we're trying to do with the human rights uh, code at Ontario Shores. And you being in the position you are and your experience in hockey, you're, you're I don't know if you, you don't necessarily stand alone in that opinion, but in you're the public face of, of those kind of issues. And there's one other one that you kind of are too, I think, is you publicly praise Gary Bettman which he doesn't get a lot of, huh. <laughs> he does not get a lot of love in Canada and around the league. Whenever that, uh, just to bring it back to hockey, whenever that poor guy hands out the Stanley Cup, he gets booed mercilessly. Well, yeah. the commissioner, all the commissioners get booed, <laughs> but it is, it is over the top with Gary, and, and I don't understand it. And, and I, I get very frustrated because he's not well-liked in the U.S., but he's despised in Canada, <laughs> and I don't understand it. Like, he has done more for this sport than any human being that ever walked on the planet. He's a great guy. If he were here, you'd love him. Like, he's a great speaker. He's family-oriented, does a ton of charity work. Like, he's got a great moral compass. His, his family comes first on everything, but he's involved in so many different charities. He's one of the smartest guys I ever met. Like, I remember we were doing collective bargaining, and Gary was talking in front of the union. And he said, well, we could try that. No, it won't work. Cause this, and he's way ahead of all of them and way ahead of me. I went to Harvard Law School. I'm a pretty good lawyer. <laughs> so I, we took a break. I said, Gary, you got to slow down, man. None of, the, none of the lawyers for the union can follow you. And he said, well, that's their problem. I said, I can't follow you either. <laughs> so he, he's, a, he's a great guy. He's brilliant. He's tough as nails. I love him. I love the guy. But I've given up trying to convince Canadians he's a good guy. <laughs> it's just it's too, uh, it's too big a hill to climb. I will tell you, if I called Gary Bettman right now in front of all of you and say, I need you to be here tomorrow, he'd say, what time? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of guy he is. Uh, just um, moving off of, the, of that a little bit, you're, you're currently working at Sportsnet. I know you don't like the word currently. currently but uh, how do you envision... Uh, this next phase of your life. You've been involved uh, on the team side uh, for, I think you... 31 years. Yeah, a very long time. It's, uh, it's a lifestyle, not just a career. And uh, so how are you finding the transition to TV and, and how do you foresee the next little while playing out? Well, currently is kind of apt because there were big changes at Sportsnet in the summer. They let some people go. Um, it's not a real stable line of work right now. Like... Uh, I think a lot of people think that anyone can do it for one thing, and they can get people to do it more cheaply and less expensively. So I don't know. I really like working there. I really like Sportsnet. I like the people I work with. I like the work. I like talking about hockey, getting paid to talk about hockey and watch hockey. Um, 31 years I worked on the team and league side, and I, I had enough of arguing with rich white people. So <laughs> I, I'd, I prefer to argue with some rich black or Asian people, <laughs> but they don't own teams in our league just yet. Uh, we have our first Hispanic owner with, yeah, with uh, right. Phoenix now, which is great. But I just, you know, you, you, you work for a team, the owner brings you in and he thinks you're the guy and you are the guy and he listens to you for 24 months maybe. And then if you don't have a parade, he starts telling you, we need this guy, we need that guy. <laughs> and I don't miss that. I don't miss the travel. Um, 
I have July and August off. I took all my kids to Africa this summer. I took them to Italy last summer. I've never had summers off in my life. I went back and thought, I was in grade seven the last time I didn't have a summer job. <laughs> so it's been great. I love it. I, I like the people I work with, and um, I enjoy it. So we'll see if we make a career out of it. If not, I'll do something else. I'm big on options. I'm big on, I taught law, I taught law school for 10 years while I was in Vancouver. I taught at UBC mm -hmm. Law School. I, there's a lot of things I can do if I need a job, and I don't really need a job. I just like to work. No. Well, thank you for being here. And as I mentioned off the top, I think one of the things that you bring to your role, especially on TV, but even when you were on the hockey side, is that people view you as an old school guy, but you have modern views. And I think that's really important because I think kids grow up and they, they watch the NHL and they feel like you gotta be a certain way. And in your role, you're showing them that he can be, there can be all sorts of different ways, and there's, not, uh, there's no mold that they have to follow. And I think that in and of itself is very valuable. Well, I, I think so too. I appreciate that. There, I think it's really important that the, uh, when I talk about how we play the game, I think it's really important that this game not get too far away from its DNA. Mm -hmm. And I worry some nights that we are. I see some nights where it's flag football out there. And I said this on TV last week. I said, I'd be happy some nights if some of the Leaf players would curse at the other team even. <laughs> They're not going to fight them, so at least <laughs> you swear at them. Or, so, um, and, I, and people say, oh, you're just a dinosaur. You want to go back to the 70s. No, I don't. I think the game is great right now the way it's played. It's so fast. I don't want, like, the, the year I played in the American League, we were the Broad State Bullies, the Flyers farm team, but I think we emptied the bench five or seven times that year. <laughs> including once in the conference finals. We had a bench-clearing brawl in Halifax in the conference finals. I don't want to go back to those days, three-hour games, six, seven fights, but I don't want to see fighting eliminated either. I think it still has an important part in our game. And so does a lot of the message that you carry with you, so it's got an important part in, in the game and in Canadian culture as a, on Sportsnet. So thanks again for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having day. me. Congratulations. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Begins and ends with